All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for being here. If you are new, just want to say thanks for taking the time to come. Uh, it's a big deal to go to a new place. So thanks for being here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. I am excited to be beginning a brand new sermon series on the book of Philippians today. And this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It was actually the first book of the Bible that I ever read 15 years ago. Okay, so I think I was a sophomore in high school. And to think that God would save that high school boy just trying to figure out what the heck Paul is talking about and then call him to be a preacher of the gospel, it blows my mind, right? It just blows my mind what God has done. Actually, yeah, I've just been thinking about it a lot because it was that very first book I read, just what God can do in a life. So I'm grateful to preach this morning and to be God's, or to be a minister of the gospel. And I consider it an honor to preach this book verse by verse. This is this is the scripture of the living God. I consider it a great honor. And we believe in verse-by-verse -verse preaching here at St. Church because we believe that the word of God is living and active and that it can just change people. That's what the writer to the Hebrews talks about. It can change people. So we just work through scripture. God will do his thing. He doesn't need our creativity or strategy or ways of communicating. All those things are fine, but, but he ultimately needs the word of God to be able to do its work, right? Uh, Paul calls the word of God the sword of the spirit, right? So as we preach the word of God, we believe that the sword of the spirit is doing his thing. So I'm excited and just want to say thanks for allowing me to open God's word. The fact that you would be here this morning is just an honor. So we're going to tackle two verses today. So I promise this series won't be as long as the Mark series. Mark series is 59 parts. This will be about 15 Okay, so we'll get through the summer, going through Philippians, but you know, only doing two verses on the first week, that's not a good start for trying to get this done quick. So let's read it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul's writing this, but Timothy is the one actually writing it. So Paul's dictating it, Timothy is writing it out for Paul, and, and Timothy was a co-laborer with Paul. Okay, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you. In peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, the sermon title is The Gospel Works. The Gospel Works. All right, let's pray over this. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this people, their hearts. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to have your way in each and every heart and that you would just do what you want to do. God, we love you. We're excited to see what you're going to do this morning and are grateful to be in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple weeks ago, Emily and I went on vacation. It's our 10-year anniversary in June. She has a, we have a baby coming, so it can't really fly at the end of June. So we decided to go in May, and, and we wanted to make it as cheap as possible, which sometimes, if that's your mindset, it just, you run into problems in life, right? Just a, just a free tip if you're younger in here and you try to make everything cheap. Sometimes you pay for it later, and this is what we experienced. We tried to get the cheapest airline we could find. We're like, that is so cheap. This is going to be brilliant, right? I'm so smart. Kim, I found this ticket. And, and little did we know, and I'm not going to say what the airline is. I really want to because I'm kind of mad at them, but no, I'm not going to. <laughs> but, but as we uh, got to the airport and everything, we were disappointed to find out that they charged you for everything, right? Carry-on bag, like 60 bucks. They charge you if you print off your tag. Like if they take a second to print it off, they're like 25 bucks. Like I was going uh, to get some pretzels on the plane. They're like, hey, it's 10 bucks, not 10 bucks. They're like five bucks for pretzels. I went to the bathroom. There's a card reader on the toilet. I'm kidding. There's not that, but <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, the point is they were charging us for everything. And, and by the time this was all said and done, we spent more money going on the cheaper airline than we would have if we flew one of the major ones. 
totally pointless. Anyways, uh, on top of this, like they were so bad at, at communication and organization. On the way back, we were in the Cancun airport waiting at our gate. You know, it says our, our flight, where it's headed, it's on time, we're excited. And then all of a sudden, it just changes. Like the TV changes to a different flight. And they don't tell us anything. We're like about to board. And then it changes to a different flight. We're like, what are we supposed to do right now? All the people are sitting there like, what's going on? So we go to the agent. We're like, hey, hey, what's going on? They're like, hey, go talk to the other agents down there, down the hall. And you know, airports can be a little bit of walk. So we walk down there. We're like, hey, what's going on with our flight? And they're like, hey, go back to your original gate and just wait. We'll announce it. So we go all the way back. And then, uh, or a rumor starts to go around the group, right? So this group of people who before were like a bunch of individuals were like ignoring each other with our, you know, like AirPods in and just reading and stuff. We're all like starting to gather together. Like, what do we do? What do we do? Are we going to get back to Chicago? What's going to happen? Right? So uh, we're all talking and someone heard from somewhere, I don't know where, that, hey, actually our flight's moving down to this other gate towards the other direction. So we all get our bags. We're going down there. Yeah, we figured it out. We get down there. We ask the agent at that gate and they say, go back to your original gate. We're like, and at this point, I hear Emily talking with one of the other ladies on the flight, you know, and they end up talking for like 45 minutes, and the lady's like sharing, I have anxiety, I'm like, and Emily's just ministering over there. I'm like, what's going on right now? I love my wife. But point is, we were like the, this group of individuals, and, and uh, this whole mishap at the airport was starting to kind of bind us together. We're becoming like some type of community, right? We're like, hey, we're all really mad right now, and we're, we're friends now. But uh, it's just crazy what the uh, kind of things can, or can bring people together. We... Or just for a moment, we went from a bunch of individuals to this united, frustrated group, and, and it ended up turning out in the end. We did get home, as you can see, but, uh, but it was quite the uh, morning. And uh, yeah, so the point is, this, this little bit of adversity, it brought us together with a common purpose. We went from strangers on a flight to somewhat of a community. It's funny what can catalyze people to come together with a common purpose, right? There are certain things that just seem to melt differences between people and make them one people on one mission. So I think of football games, where I don't care who you are, you got the same jersey on, woo, we're best friends. Or political rally, we're all shouting things together. Or maybe a natural disaster can bring people together, a national tragedy, a pandemic can bring, never mind, uh, at the beginning, (laughs) at the beginning of a pandemic, for like two hours, it brought us together. We're all like, staying home saves lives, y'all, come on. We're all like, we're in this together, but uh, that didn't last super long. But uh, a common enemy can bring people together, a terrible airline experience. All the introverts were like, amen, when they were saying that. Anyways, but uh, sorry. So a terrible airline experience can bring people together. There are certain things that can bring the unlikeliest of people together into a community. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to do for the church. If you don't know, the gospel is the good news of how Jesus became king by overthrowing evil and paying for our sins. It's the story, you know, Pastor Derek shared it so beautifully, the story of how Jesus became king through his cross and through the resurrection. The gospel, or in the Greek, the euangelion, this message of good news, it's supposed to be a catalyst that saves the unlikeliest of people and makes them into one family and then sends them out on mission. The gospel is supposed to do some serious work. It's supposed to have so much power wrapped up in it. And this is what the apostle Paul wrote when he, or when he wrote to the, to the Romans. This is what he said about the gospel in, in verse 16 of chapter one of that book. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, the gospel is the very power of God that can bring salvation to all types of people. In the first century, when Paul planted churches across the Greco-Roman world, he saw the power of this gospel. 
It saved all types of people. It, it grafted them into a family. It empowered them to bring the gospel of the kingdom or it empowered them to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Even with that being said, while the churches would typically start off strong, they, they would typically fall into some serious struggles as false teachers would come in and people would give in to pride, right? People can be really prideful, right, including me. And rampant sin would sometimes become acceptable in the church. Like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And Paul would often write these letters in the back half of the New Testament to correct these struggles, right? He would say, you're doing it wrong. Okay, let me help you out again, right? He's, just, he's trying to, to help them get along in their journey. And in these letters, he would often uh, call out false teachers. He, he would call people to humility and to holiness. And because of this, his letters actually would typically take kind of a correcting tone to them. And as you read his letters, you can see grief and concern for the churches that he started. He, he's concerned. But this is where the book of Philippians is very different. Okay, so while the church of Philippians was not perfect, and Paul does provide some correction, it was actually very healthy and still united in common purpose under King Jesus when Paul wrote to them. And many scholars believe that the church at Philippi was Paul's favorite church. He's not supposed to have favorites, but it seems like his favorite church. In this letter, he has a a very warm tone, okay? At the beginning of the letter, which we just saw, he calls himself a servant. Typically, he calls himself an apostle. He's saying, I got a position in the kingdom. You need to listen to me. And this one, he's like, I'm just a servant of Jesus. And, and what he's saying is he doesn't need to rely on his position to get them to listen to, or to him, right? They are humble, and, and they're ready to listen to Paul. And, and throughout this letter, he's far more encouraging than he is corrective. The church at Philippi, simply put, was a special church, it was an example of health and love and encouragement to Paul's soul. It might be the best example we have in the New Testament of a truly healthy, spirit-filled, gospel-centered church. I'm so excited to dive into his letter to the church. But, but before that, I want to explain a little bit about where this church was located. Okay, so this, the city of Philippi, it was the first city in all of Europe where people heard and accepted the gospel. It had been a Roman colony since 42 BC, so about 100 years, give or take, before the church got started. It became a, it became a Roman colony when, when Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Julius, or Julius Caesar's assassins on the plains near Philippi. So they had chased the assassins down. These were the new emperors and killed uh, those assassins. And then, uh, so Philippi became a Roman colony, and then it ended up actually becoming a home mainly for or for the retired Roman veterans, so, so former soldiers. And the cities of Philippi were proud Roman citizens. They were proud of the fact that they were a part of Rome, and they actually modeled their city after the city of Rome. They loved being a part of it, and, and Roman aristocracy and architecture flourished there. Emperor worship was big there. It was the primary religion, primary expression of religious life was just worshiping the emperor. And it was really subversive not to participate in that in the city of Philippi. And the city was strategically located on this rich, fertile plain. It was near an important trade route. So it actually was a major metropolitan city. And ideas and culture in Philippi would flow out to the rest of the empire. And scholars estimate that around 10,000 people lived in Philippi, which to us doesn't seem like a lot, but back then it was a lot more people than it is today. Okay, so let me show you a couple pictures of ancient Philippi. So we got a picture of the ruins there. Okay, so I just show that to say this was an actual city where, where people lived. They had structures, they had life. And, and then there's another picture I have here of a theater. It's still there today. Uh, yeah, so this theater was a place, obviously, where 
plays would happen, kind of like their Broadway. I can't emphasize enough that these were real people, right? These were like real people doing life, enjoying life. And the Bible, it didn't just fall out of the sky, right? I think sometimes we read it like, it just kind of like floated down, we caught it. Awesome, right? No, this was like a letter written from Paul to actual people with actual problems. It's, it's grounded in time and space. It, it was written by a real person into real people with real situations. So it's in the city that, that Paul planted a church and the, and the gospel flourished. And, and Paul, he founded this church in the late 40s and, and they saw, or he saw some dramatic conversions that got the church started. Just some crazy God stories. Some, some amazing things happened to get the church started. God brought some unlikely people together to form a family. And by the time Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, it's the early 60s, so we're talking maybe 15 years between the planting and the writing of the letter. And he's a much older man at this point. He's been beaten up a lot for the faith, right? He's, been, he's went through a lot, and, and he's in prison, at this time, actually. He, he's writing this letter from prison. And, and the beautiful thing is the Philippians had not forgotten about him, which is a big deal because to be in prison, I think it still is, but, but it's quite a stigma, right? Where you're kind of like, okay, I'm not gonna associate with that person anymore. But they still cared for Paul. And actually, in Rome, if you were in prison, uh, it was actually your responsibility to provide for yourself. So if people didn't like send you money and supplies, it was a pretty terrible experience, right? You needed people to care for you and, and to provide for you. And the Philippians, they took care of Paul financially. They would send him financial gifts. And, and, and specifically, they sent a man named Epaphroditus. Wow, I said that good. <laughs> I was nervous, guys. That was like the most thing I was nervous about. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Yeah, I can do it. I, I just wrote him as EPAP in my, in my journal, in my notes this week. EPAP. But, uh, so, so they sent Epaphroditus to go and to bring the support to him and, and to care for him. And, and during his journey, he actually became ill. So this guy from the Philippian church, he, he's journeying to, to Paul's jail, and he almost dies on the way to do this. And, and thankfully, he recovered, and Paul sent this letter back with him. So Paul's like, Epap, you gotta go back. You get, and you have to let them know that you're okay. So Paul, he wrote this letter as an extended thank you note to the Philippians for caring for him, but also he wanted to use it as a, as a way to send Epaphroditus back and then to tell him about his or tell them about his future plans to send Timothy there, his coworker, to send him there. And finally, he just wanted to use it to encourage them in their faith. Because again, it had been 15 years since he planted the church. So Paul, he had done, or he had truly done life with these people, right? He had, had truly loved these people. He saw their lives changed right before his eyes, and now he's encouraging them, or he's encouraging them with this letter. So with that in mind, I want to read it again. Okay, so a little more context now. Let's read it again, verse one and two. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, so the church leaders, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what possibly can we get out of a passage that essentially says, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> There's actually a lot more here than you might think. So in verse five, which we'll look at next week, Paul will thank them for being his partners in the gospel. So partners in the Galleon, partners in the good news. They were partners in carrying forward the gospel. And Paul's a simple greeting here, which he just oozes the gospel, so it just comes out all over the place. But in this simple greeting, he actually unpacks or he shares some truth about the gospel that had changed the city of Philippi. So, so he's pointing to some of the elements of the gospel that had, had so deeply transformed these people. And the first thing that 
So essentially what I want to do with the rest of our time is point out these truths in the gospel and then how they apply to our lives. So uh, the first thing you can see here is Paul's emphasis on Jesus. This is crazy. In two verses, he refers to Jesus three times. He has a variation of Christ Jesus three times. Can we put the scripture actually back up on the screen just for a second? So if it's, if it's already on there. Oh, it is on there. Great. So, so the word Christ, it, it means Messiah or king. It's not just his last name. If you thought Christ was his last name, I just gave you like a good little tidbit today. But it means Messiah or king. So in Tom Wright's translation, he actually translates this explicitly instead of saying Christ. He says, from Paul and Timothy, slaves or servants of King Jesus to all God's holy people in King Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseas the overseers and the ministers, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus the King. Okay, so as Paul begins his letter to this church that he so dearly loved, he reminds them of an important piece of the gospel. Jesus is king. Okay, to a people in a society like ours where we don't have a king, this may not seem like that big of a deal to us, but to these people, this was a very significant piece of the gospel. Okay, Philippi was very loyal to Rome and to the emperor, and they liked being Roman citizens. They it seems like they like Caesar as their king, and to, and to reject worship of him was kind of crazy. To say that you are a citizen of a heavenly colony, right? not a Roman colony, a citizen of a heavenly colony, which Paul will do later, he'll say that later, like, that was provocative. It was a direct assault on the empire. It was essentially saying, hey, Jesus is king and Caesar is not. Jesus is king and Caesar is not. This element of the gospel, it's becoming increasingly provocative in our culture. We don't worship an emperor, but we worship ourselves often, and we worship the culture we live in. We, or we tend to worship our ideas, and we, and we give our allegiance to the things of this world, and to resist all those types of worship in our culture can be more and more provocative, right? It can seem outrageous to people in our culture, just as it seemed outrageous to uh, the Philippians to uh, resist emperor worship. Okay, so Paul, he begins by highlighting this important piece of the gospel, not one, not two, but three times. King Jesus. King Jesus, the Lord Jesus the King. Okay, the Galion, the gospel, what's it tell us? It tells us that Jesus of Nazareth, like a real person, right? Luke 2, he's dedicated to the Lord, a real person who was a baby. He went to the bathroom. He got sick, a real person from Nazareth, this little hinky-dink town in Israel, he has become king of the cosmos. Whoa, this is crazy stuff that Paul is saying here. Paul then goes further, and he gives us another important piece of the gospel. Okay, so notice how he identifies himself. In verse one, he says, or he calls himself in Timothy, he calls them servants, or he calls them slaves. We are slaves of King Jesus. Okay, so the fact that Jesus was king had implications to the way that him and Timothy lived their lives. In a Roman colony like Philippi, they had slaves. And slaves, they would work under the subjection and at the will of their masters, right? And by using this phrase, Paul shows the Philippians that, that when you surrender to King Jesus and invite him into your life, you're choosing to become his slave. You're choosing to become his servant. You are surrendering your autonomy and submitting to his will. Okay, so the gospel is not just that Jesus is king. It's, hey, Hey, we can be his servants. We can be his slaves. And to some of you, you're like, that ain't good news. I don't want to be no slave. I don't want to be a servant of nobody. But it's actually the best news you could ever hear. In fact, it's a high privilege. Okay, so throughout this letter, Paul, he, 
he repeatedly emphasizes the majesty and the glory of Jesus. He is the exalted king of the earth, and he is the name that's above every name. I'm about to start singing that forever Yahweh song again. If you, you better watch out. I might be singing here, man. That's so good. Right? He is the king of the earth. He's the name above every other name. And to be his slave, it is an honor. It's a privilege. And not just that. It's not just an honor. It's not like, oh, ooh, I get to serve a great king. But it's actually the best way to live. Right? To surrender to the king of the cosmos, to surrender to him, it's the, it's the best thing for you. Why? Because he's smarter than you. He's a heck of a lot smarter than you are. He's been around for a while. He created you. He knows the things that make you tick. He knows what's going to help you flourish. In John 10, Jesus says, I came to give them life, and to give them life to the full. Psalm 16, David, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Being Jesus' servant is so much better than trying to be your own king or queen just smarter. It's wiser. To be a slave of Jesus is far superior to any other identity you can take on in this world. It's a better way to live. And when you surrender to him, you can have joy no matter what's going on. That's going to be a big theme throughout this letter. You can have joy no matter what your circumstances are because you're submitted to the king. You can trust him. And trust that he is working everything out for your good. And he will win in the end. And the cool thing too is this king, he's not just like really powerful, but he died for you. So what's that mean? It means he has your best interest in mind. If he would take stripes on his back and bleed for you, I think you might be able to trust him. The beautiful thing is when we surrender and say, Jesus is king, and we are not. We can have joy beyond the walls of this world. That's what J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, said. I'm going to talk about that more next week. I, I love that quote, and I love Lord of the Rings. But this is, a, yeah, like I said, it, this joy, it's a big theme of this letter. Uncontainable joy is possible when you're a slave of Jesus. This is good news. Jesus is king, and we're not. And we get to serve the king. But there's one more important element of the gospel that's found in verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is Paul's adaptation of the Greek greeting of the day. And then peace comes from the Jewish greeting of the day, which was shalom. So Paul's taking them together. He's combining them. And the word for grace, it's charis in the Greek. Okay, so in the original language, it's charis, which means that which affords joy or pleasure Pleasure in Christ Jesus, or delight, or sweetness, or charm, or loveliness. It's the goodwill, the loving kindness and favor of God. It's the unmerited favor of God. I need some charis this morning. That sounds really good. Come on, I want some charis. We're going to have a charis party after this. Grace, on top of grace, right? So good. All right, so the word for peace is the word irene, which I think should be someone's name, irene. I love that. It means harmony, security, safety, and the tranquil state of a soul that is assured of its salvation and fears nothing from God. I want some, some Irene this morning too. Okay, here's the thing. When we put our trust in King Jesus, when we become his slave, this loving kindness 
and peace of God can be ours. And when we surrender to him, we're forgiven of our sins no matter what you've done. So if you blew it this week, there's good news. Like Jesus, he can give you grace and peace. He has made you right with God by paying for your penalty. Okay, the gospel is Jesus is king, we can be his servants, and he can give us supernatural grace and peace because Jesus came after us, because he lived the perfect life, because he died in our place and rose from the grave and now sits at the right hand of God. We can have grace or charis and peace. And we're not saved by our works, right? We're not trying to measure up. I can't do it. You can't do it. You can't be good enough for him. We're not trying to measure up, but instead we are saved by charis alone and through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the euangelion that Paul was so passionate about preaching, where he said, I'll give anything to preach this gospel. Jesus is king and we're not. And that's good news. And he gives us grace on top of grace, as the Apostle John says in his gospel. Grace on top of grace. And this gospel is not just something you believe once. Like, okay, I believe it. I get my get out of hell free card. I'm in. No, you need the gospel to sustain you through life. It's something you need to remind yourself of every day. Why? Because you're gonna mess up. Right? You need the gospel to center you and ground you. And this gospel, it was not just theory for Paul. It was not just some idea. It's not just like intellectual assent to, okay, Jesus is God. No, he had experienced the power of the gospel in his own life. Before coming to faith in Christ, he had killed Christians. He had, had murdered sons and daughters of God. And then what did Jesus do? He appeared to him. Jesus came to him and said, Paul, what are you doing, man? Put your trust in me. I've called you to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Paul had killed God's sons and daughters. God comes to him, and what does he do? He gives him grace. If someone killed your kid, I don't know what you'd be doing. Probably not saying, hey, grace on top of grace. That's what Jesus says. And then what's he do? He sends them out on mission says, bring that same grace to people who need it. Jesus says, there's people all over the world who are dominated by demonic powers, bringing the good news that I can set them free to them. Bring good news that they can be forgiven of their sins. Philippi needs you to go to them, Paul. And Paul's like, I'm in. I'll do it. This was not just theory for Paul. And then he goes to Philippi, and he sees the gospel do business there. As he sought out to plant that church, he saw the same grace and peace that he received. He saw it come to them. The, the gospel, it worked in Philippi. And we see that in Acts chapter 16. Thanks to the book of Acts, we have this story of how the church in Philippi got started. The author Luke, he records the story all throughout Acts 16. If you have your Bibles, I think it'd be helpful to turn there. I'm not gonna really read it. I'm just gonna summarize it. <coughs> but just before Paul came to Philippi, <clears throat> In Acts 16, he attended the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which is where they decided that, that Gentiles do not need to go through Jewish, or the Jewish rituals to, to become Christians. All they have to do is trust in Jesus, and Jesus will save them. So Paul, he gets this news, and then he's eager to take it back to churches. So, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they go from town to town where churches had already been planted, and they share, hey, Gentiles, they don't have to do all the Jewish regulations, all that stuff. It's awesome. You don't have to get circumcised, men who are 
Yeah, that's good news for them. Um, it's very good news. But uh, so after this, that was, okay. I keep wanting to joke about it. I'm just going to stop. Okay. <laughs> after this, Paul and Silas decided to take the gospel to new places. However, this is what happens. So Paul has some ideas of where he wants to go, and the Holy Spirit says, no. Paul's like, come on. Don't you want me to plant your church? No, don't go there. It's not going to work out well. And he's like, okay, I'll go here. So first he tries to go to Asia. No, he tries to go to Bithynia. No. Paul's like, come on, man. I'm just trying to do what you told me to do. And then what happens? He's sleeping one night, and this man from Macedonia comes to him and says, come and help us. Come help me. Paul's like, okay, that's all I needed. I'm going. Yeah, you don't have to ask Paul twice. He's been waiting. Okay, so he responds by going to, to Macedonia, which is Philippi, and, uh, or he goes to Philippi, and, and he was eager to see the gospel do work there. And Paul's custom when he would take the gospel to new places is he would go to the synagogue, so the Jewish place of gathering, and he would start with them, right? Start with interested Jews. Start with the people who are actually interested in these things. He go, or he tries to find a synagogue. There's no synagogue. Why is that? Well, because you need 10 men to, or to form a quorum to be able to have a synagogue. So Paul's like, there's got to be a women's Bible study somewhere. <laughs> there's always a women's Bible study. So he goes down to the river. Sure enough, there's those faithful women. Women are always... I could do a sermon on that, but uh, I feel like women are just, it seems in my experience, this isn't like a universal truth, but I feel like women are more eager in general to take the things of God seriously. I'm praying that St. Church will be filled with men who believe in the gospel and lay down their lives for Jesus. I'm praying men in this room, if you're apathetic, knock it off. Set the pace. Set the pace for your wife and your kids and your friends, your community. Set the pace. Men, let's do it. Okay, I want to hear about how there's a men's Bible study down by the river. You all praying together. It's funny because right now we have a women's book study and there's no men's book study. So anyways, <laughs> it's probably my fault. All right, so at this Bible study, he meets a woman named Lydia. And she was likely Asian. She sold purple cloth. And we see that she owned a house because she would host Paul and his companions there. Okay, so she was a successful businesswoman to own a house and all that. It means she was a, a successful businesswoman. She was a, a fashionista, a CEO. She did well for herself. And Luke also tells us that, that she was a God-fearer. Okay, what's that mean? It means that she wasn't Jewish, but she was, was following or trying to follow uh, the Jewish God. She was trying to read the Hebrew Bible and, and do her best to follow God. She was a religious person, and this is why she was at this prayer meeting. So Paul, he shares the gospel with her. And God moved. It says this in verse 14, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As Paul preached, God opened her heart to believe the gospel, and she was baptized. The gospel broke new ground. The enemy's territory at Philippi, right? No Christians here yet. It's the enemy's territory. He's in charge. It had been cracked at this point because one heart had put her faith in Jesus, right? The kingdom of God was going forth, and actually this woman was the first person in Europe to put her faith in Jesus, right? So the gospel is going to Europe. The gospel, it, it worked for a woman, right? We see that here. We see that the gospel worked for a woman. The women here are like, yes. It works for us too. You'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. Okay, so, 
So the woman came to faith by intellectual engagement with the gospel. Okay, the second convert in Philippi comes to faith in an entirely different way. She ain't at no woman's Bible study by the river. Instead, she is demonized. And she would use her, her demonization to predict the future and get wealth for other people, right? She was like a commodity. The slave girl was a commodity. Her ability to tell the future would bring income in for people in Philippi. She starts following them around, proclaiming that they are servants of God. She's like shouting at them, they are servants of the Most High God. I would think that would be like, good. Like, thank you for pointing that out. Yes, we are from God. But Paul gets really annoyed because she'd been doing this for a few days. And I don't know why he didn't do this sooner. But anyway, so it says this in verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Again, why not sooner? I don't know. But instead of being saved through, intel or through intellectual Engagement, she's saved through a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the gospel, it works for a slave girl, too, a woman and a slave girl. After coming to faith in Christ, she stopped predicting the future. She stopped gaining income for her masters by doing so, and this angered them, right? You get at people's pocketbooks, oh man. And, and, and Paul and Silas, they get arrested for it. Or the Philippians aren't putting up with them anymore. In verse 21, they accuse them of teaching customs that are illegal for, or for the Romans to practice, okay? So in this accusation, you can see the pride again that comes from being a Roman, right? They were committed to the emperor. They were committed to the empire. You can't be teaching stuff against these customs. And this is the context that the gospel starts to take root in. Paul and Silas, they end up getting arrested, and they respond in a peculiar, a peculiar way. In verse 25, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Okay, they're in prison. They're praying, they're singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Okay, so instead of shaking their fist at God or falling into despair, they are praising God. They have joy beyond the walls of their cell, right? They're like praising the Lord. And this is a testimony to the other prisoners. As they praise God in the midst of their storm, God shows up. In verse 26, it says, and suddenly there was an earthquake. And so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, when the jailer saw that the prison doors were opened, he assumed that everyone escaped and he almost kills himself. He's about to kill himself. And in Rome during this time, if a prisoner escaped, the jailer would likely be killed. So Paul, he assures them that they are all still there. He said, hey, we're still here. Don't kill yourself. And he ends up leading the jailer to Christ and his whole family to Christ. And this is the last member of the Philippian church launch team, church planting launch team. We got the gospel working for a woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile. A woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile. The church at Philippi was started with these three who had all experienced the grace and peace of King Jesus and became his servants. One's redeemed through intellectual engagement. One's uh, redeemed through a power encounter. And one is redeemed through Paul and Silas suffering well and being willing to sacrifice, going free uh, to share the gospel with him. The story of their founding demonstrates the very power of the gospel that Paul highlights in the opening words of his letter to them so many years later. The fact that Jesus is king and we can be his servants and he can give us supernatural grace and peace, it can do some work in people's lives. The gospel works. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. The gospel, the euangelion, it works. Religious people can become spirit-filled church planters like Lydia. Demonized people can be filled with peace that surpasses understanding. Secular men can be softened just like the jailer. 
As Paul begins his letter to the church he loves, he no doubt has these stories in his heart. He's remembering the glory days. Do you remember what God did? Do you remember how he moved among us? And he's in awe as he's thinking of it. He's in awe of how the grace and peace of King Jesus did work in these people's hearts. He loves the Philippians. And Paul's hope is that as they read these letters, that they would have a fresh encounter with grace and peace that the gospel provides. He prays that the same gospel that transformed them in the beginning would do some work on them right here and right now. He wants the gospel to do work. And I believe as we head into the summer, as we are gonna journey through this letter verse by verse, the Lord wants us to experience that same grace and peace that the gospel provides. He wants the gospel to do work in us. In the story of the church at Philippi, it shows us how the gospel does this. It shows us how it works in our lives. It, at first, it makes us right with God. The gospel did serious work in the unlikeliest of people in Philippi. Here's the thing. You can be made right with God if you simply repent, turn from your ways, and trust in him. If you will just stop trying to be the king or the queen of your own life and let Jesus be king, all bets are off. He can make you right with God. And for those of us who are religious like Lydia, he can open our hearts and make us true lovers of him. Like maybe here you go to church, you do the thing, but you don't really love the Lord. He can do work in your heart. And for those who are dominated by dark powers and sin, like, like the slave girl was, Jesus can set you free. And for those who find their hope in the things of the world like the jailer did, he can help you find your hope in something that can't be shaken. Right, the jailer, he almost killed himself because he found his identity in all the wrong things. His identity was wrapped up in his job as a jailer. And when that was threatened, he did not want to live anymore. And some of you, if you're honest, you can relate with him. Okay, when your family fails you, or your money's running dry, or you don't succeed, or God forbid, your favorite sports team loses, you feel like you could die. You're like, I wanna die right now, at least metaphorically. And for those of us who... who who find our identity in the wrong things, Jesus can help us find our identity in him alone. He can help us experience the grace and peace that, that can reposition our heart's affections uh, from the things of this world to him. The gospel makes us right with God, covers our sin, puts us back together, it restores us. But it doesn't just do that. Here's the thing, when Jewish men would go into a synagogue, they would pray a very specific prayer. They would pray, thank God, I'm not a woman. Some of you women about to kill some men in here. I'm just kidding. Thank God I'm not a, a woman. Well, I said it this way. Thank God I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. They would pray that when they go in the synagogue. And the women are like, yeah, that's good. And seriously, they would like shout, I forget what it was, but they would say something back to the men that's like affirming that statement. So Jesus was strategic in using a woman, a slave, and a Gentile to establish the church in Philippi. Oh, man, woo, that's good stuff. He's making a point that Paul's gonna make in Galatians chapter three. What's he say? He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's not man or woman, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus' church is meant to be the home of all types of people who truly repent and call him king. He saves Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. He saves men and women. And you receive, or when you receive this grace and peace, Jesus brings you into his family regardless of your background. 
Okay, when Paul greets the church at Philippi, he says to all the saints in Philippi. He doesn't just address the leaders. He's saying all the saints in Philippi. He's emphasizing the entire church. His letter was not written for special Christians. It wasn't just written for the leaders. It was for all. They may be utterly different from one another. They may not share the same interests. They may be are slaves and free men and women, but they're all one family under the banner of Jesus Christ. My heart is burning. The gospel is not just for individuals to get into heaven. It's about making individuals into one people. The gospel works. It makes us into a family. We miss this part of the gospel. It's so foundational to it. It makes us into a family. Just as the people, to get a little lighter, on our airplane, united together in Mexico to try to get back to Chicago, People who have been rescued by Jesus the King, they should be united together with common love and purpose. The gospel brings us together. And this message was especially potent in Paul's day when the church was continually threatened to be broken between Jew and Gentile. In his letter to the Ephesians, he directly spoke to this. He said, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have, or both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus the King himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That's a long little passage. So good. At the center of Paul's theology of the gospel is that it brings peace between all who call on him. The gospel breaks down dividing walls of hostility between men and women, slave and free, Gentile and Jew. It brings them into one family. Because Jesus broke his body, we can become one body. Because Jesus left heaven, we can become fellow citizens of heaven. And we can become a holy temple unto the Lord. When you put your trust in Jesus and receive his good news, you can be grafted into the family that's not united by common interest or socioeconomic class or anything in this world, but by the blood. The blood is our common heritage and tongue. The blood of Jesus unites us. The story of the Philippians, or the Philippians shows us that the gospel works. It makes us right with God. It makes us right with each other. There's one more thing. At least one more thing. <laughs> but that's it for today. So God, there's one more thing today. God sovereignly, he... He uses Lydia, the slave girl, and the Gentile, or the, or the jailer, the woman, the slave, the Gentile, to start the church, not just to show his grace to all types of people, but to show that he can use anyone he wants to use to build his church. Oh, man. He used the very people that Jewish men think that they weren't, say, thank you, I'm not those people, to plant the healthiest church in the New Testament. Is this kidding you yet? Oh my goodness. The gospel doesn't go forward and it's not built on the backs of the most talented or the most prestigious. The gospel goes forward and is built on the back of Jesus the King. 
We're the glove. Jesus is the hand working through us. The woman, the slave, and the Gentile were used by God because they were willing to be used by him. The gospel works. It doesn't just make us right with God. It doesn't just make us into one family. It empowers us no matter what our weaknesses are. Come on. No matter what your background is, what your weaknesses are, your struggles, it can empower you. I gotta go on vacation more often. I'm fired up today. (laughs) We gotta get a teaching team, Pastor Derek. Every other week, we could do this. I'm just kidding. He's like, shut it. Uh, Anyways, the gospel can go forward anywhere. God can use anyone. As Jesus told Peter, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. When ordinary men and women surrender to the king and want to be used by him, nothing is impossible. Has the gospel worked yet in your life? Has it worked yet? Has Jesus become king? Have you become his servant? Have you experienced his grace and peace? Maybe the answer this morning is no. If so, I'm really, really glad you're here because there's good news for you this morning. Just as the gospel worked for the people of Philippi, it can work for you. It can make you right with God. It can bring you into a family. It can empower you with heavenly purpose. The gospel of Jesus Christ works. That's the main idea. I've experienced the power of the gospel in my own life. When I read the book of Philippians for the first time, the day was uh, July 13th of 2008. It's the first time I read the Bible. I have the journal right here. Sunday, July 13th of 2008, Philippians 1. On the front, Daniel's Bible notes. (laughs) Keep moving forward. I needed that, man. It was a bumpy ride. It's been a bumpy ride. but uh... So again, July 13, 2008, 15 years ago, the first thing I wrote down was Philippians 1.6. Just read it off the journal. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of JC, because I didn't want to write out Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is hard for me to read the Bible and journal about it. This proved to be prophetic for me. On that day, I know myself at that, at that time, it was a Sunday night, and I was definitely on a spiritual high from church because that's the only time I read the Bible, right? It caused me to crack that Bible open that day. I'm like, I'm gonna journal, keep moving forward. Lasted four days, took a break for a couple months, came back to it, but in that season, I felt like I, I, felt like I loved Jesus even though my life didn't really look like it at the time. I had some serious struggles going on in my life in that season. I, I, I was doing things with girls that I shouldn't have been doing. I knew I shouldn't have been doing them, but it was so hard not to do those things. I was addicted to pornography. It was just a tough time. And in the following three years, I would party a ton, do a ton of things I regretted. You know, Jesus, I, I did believe in him. I, I believe I would have went to heaven if I died. I believed in him. Like, I believe his grace would have covered that, but he wasn't really king in my life yet. He, I wasn't really his servant. It's ironic because uh, the kind of life I was living was a life that would not give you confidence that God would complete his work in me. I seemed like a flake, right? Like, oh, he's, he's pumped up again. He's excited. He's posted on Facebook about Jesus. 
oh, he's at a party again. Who is this guy, right? It didn't give you a lot of confidence that that God was gonna complete his work in me. It's kind of crazy though. Even during that season, I thought that I may have been called into full-time ministry. I could hear that call even as like in elementary school. I just heard it my whole life. However, there were some problems. I was deeply afraid of speaking in front of people. So the Lord, I said, I will go into ministry if I don't have to talk to anybody. However we can figure that out, I will do it. I, I'm being straight here. I couldn't even raise my hand in class to ask a question because I was too afraid of talking in front of my class. I didn't have the kind of talent or courage that would give you a lot of confidence that I could be raised up for ministry. It didn't seem like God would complete that uh, little work he had started just as a young boy. It didn't seem like he would complete that work in me. That's the thing about the gospel though. It saves unlikely people. It empowers the weakest among us to do extraordinary things. Three years later, on July 23rd, 2011, God got a hold of my heart in a way that just was different than before. It wasn't a spiritual high. I honestly haven't come off of that high. I'm not trying to be like dramatic or private. I'm just, I'm still on it. Like I just, and I've had my down points, okay? But like, I've just been trying to go after the Lord since then. July 23rd, 2011, God got a hold of me. I, the gospel was real to me finally. Like this is real, like, oh, that's how serious my sin is. It's not just like something to brush off. It's serious. Your sin is serious. If you're here and you think your sin's not a big deal, it is a big deal. I'm not here to tell you, hey, no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. It is an assault on King Jesus in the way he designed you. It is bad for you. It's destructive for you. It's not good for you. I'm never gonna tell you what you wanna hear, right? It's not good for you. It is grievous and the penalty for your sin is hell. That's the penalty. That's why Jesus had to die, right? He had to die to pay the price of that grievous assault on the king of the cosmos. Because he died, you can now live, right? So here's the crazy thing. Our sin is serious, but Jesus' grace is greater. And it caused him to say, I'm gonna pay for it. I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to, to give them opportunity to be right with God. That truth, it got pressed into me in 2011, and I just can't get over it. I can't get over that God would love me. And then a couple months later, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, got a vision of being called into ministry. And I said, God, I'll give you my fears if you promise to help me. The gospel, it worked for me. Philippians 1.6, I'm still living, so gotta keep going, right? A lot of people finish poorly in the Bible, gotta keep going, but up to this point, Philippians 1.6 has proved true for me. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you when you were just a little boy in kids' church, he who began a good work in you when you wept at the altar in youth group because you're struggling with pornography, he who began a good work in you when you were trying to read the Bible and you didn't really know what you are reading, you are just trying to do the right thing, he who began a work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus the King. The gospel can work for you today. Maybe you're here and you can relate with uh or the first character, you can relate with Lydia. You're stuck in religion. You tried to measure up to God. You tried to do a certain amount of religious activities to be saved. And today you need the grace of God to come near to you. Or maybe you're like the slave girl. You're dominated by darkness. You're entangled in sin. You're, you're consumed with the world and you need Jesus to set you free. Or you're like the jailer and you're captivated by, by the worldly pursuits. You found your identity in the wrong thing. And if you lost that thing, you'd wanna die. Today, you need Jesus to call you son or daughter and reorient your entire identity around him. If you want the gospel to work in your life, the good news is all you gotta do is trust in Jesus. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet all across this room. I wanna give you an opportunity 
this morning to get right with God. And if you are a follower of Jesus already, I wanna give you an opportunity to ask God to just give you a fresh demonstration of his grace and peace. Okay, so let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. I wanna do it this way today. Bow our heads, close our eyes. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus already, so you've already put your faith in him, you're already saved, all that, and you just need like a fresh deposit of the gospel, you need a fresh deposit of grace and peace, can you just be bold, slip up your hand right now across this room? Okay, I see tons of hands going up. All right, I'm just gonna pray. You pray in your heart, Lord. Uh, for those of us with our hands up, we just want a fresh, a fresh revelation of the gospel, fresh revelation of, of, of what you did. Grace and peace, Lord. Grace and peace all across this room. Grace on top of grace. Grace on top of grace. Thank you, Lord. You put your hands down. If you're here this morning and you just want to get right with God, you maybe once followed him and you've walked away or you've never put your trust in Jesus and today you're like, I want to be in that family. I want to be forgiven. I want to be empowered for something that actually matters. If you want to put your trust in Jesus, can you just like slip up your hand right now? If that's you, slip up your hand. You're saying, hey, that's me. I just want to put my trust in Jesus. Right now, all the eyes are closed. I want to look See that hand. Is there anyone else? See a hand. Is there anyone else in this room? I see a hand over there. Anyone else this morning? Who am I praying for? All right. Go ahead and put your hands down. I had two or three people raise their hand. Uh, so yeah, let's pray for those people and you pray in your heart as we pray. So Lord, pray for those who, who want to come to you this morning. Lord, I pray that, that there would be a revelation of sin, but also a revelation of how much greater your grace is than that sin. Lord, that you're not going to hold their past against them. God, you're not going to look at their weaknesses and their struggles, but if they put their trust in you, all you're going to see is Jesus. You're just going to see the blood of Jesus covering all their sins. All you're going to see is that's paid for, paid, no debt anymore. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to, to come and live on the inside of these hearts and make them into new creations. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for these hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, we're going to sing one more time. I know it's been a longer service today, but... I don't think we can walk away from this moment yet. Let's sing one more song to Jesus. The altars will be open. Prayer team's gonna be up here. And let's just sing to him. Let's just let him minister to us.